0: Welcome to AXIS Utah, I'm Tom Williams. We tend to talk about air quality more in the wintertime, at least in the media, we're guilty of this, uh, when inversions are trapping us in especially bad air, but of course this is a serious ongoing problem. Uh, so on the program today, we're going to ask, what's the latest research tell us about our air pollution problem, and what are our current plans to ameliorate the problem? We're going to take scientific bent today, but uh, you could uh, call in with uh, policy questions as well. We're going to talk about summertime ozone, winter inversions, everything in between. And our guests are John Harrell, who is University of Utah Professor of Atmospheric Sciences, joins us from Salt Lake City. Uh, Professor Harrell, welcome to the program. Thanks for thanks for being with us. Uh, we have with us Seth Ahrens, environmental scientist with Utah Division of Air Quality. He's also, I believe, a teaching fellow at the University of Utah. Seth Arons, welcome to the program. Thank you. And we have with us in studio Randy Martin, Utah State University Associate Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me again, Tom. So uh, there is ongoing citizen action, you might call it. The second annual Clean Air Fair was held this past weekend in uh, Salt Lake City. And upcoming uh, on October 1st is the Cash Clean Air Consortium Workshop. That'll be held in Logan. There was some action this uh, legislative session at the legislature, and some money was allocated, and uh, several of the, uh, my guests today are involved in some studies based on that and been involved, in, in of course, in this uh, ongoing research uh, for uh, quite some time now. Uh, let me start with uh, Professor Harrell. You've... Uh, been involved to understand for 28 years involved in research related to weather and climate processes in the intermountain west recently completed a national science foundation study on the influence of great salt lake weather as well as weather conditions associated with poor air quality episodes in in salt lake valley maybe you could just give us give us a brief overview what you've been involved in lately
1: uh thanks tom well, it's, you know, it, it's uh, an interesting time in terms of being able to, to do research uh, into air quality because a lot of the resources that we had to use in the past were kind of bulky and very expensive, and now we can kind of come up with new and novel ways to be able to, to uh, both study the way the atmosphere is as well as the chemistry associated with the air pollution.
0: And uh, you you sent me some, some information. I was interested um, to, you say that the end goal to assess how to continue to improve air quality along the Wasatch Front, you need accurate models to, yes, to various right. test I mean, scenarios. Uh,
1: yeah, there's uh, a lot of work being sponsored uh, uh, in the state of Utah right now to try to improve modeling of of uh, air pollution. And it real really boils down to that Uh, in order to be able to improve it in the long term, we have to be able to simulate uh, how the pollutants uh, are emitted and then how they move around in the atmosphere and then how they change and evolve over time uh, in the air. And all of those things are, are pretty complicated, and the models are improving now to the point where we can start to deal with it here along the Wasatch Front.
0: So maybe you could nail down that point. Why is it important to know how this moves around uh, I, I would, I would think as, as a layman, I would think you know you got bad air, you got bad air.
1: Well, it's you know the the mountains and our terrain in northern Utah are are really critical to the whole air pollution problem, um, and so it's not only sort of the weather conditions, but how the weather interacts with that terrain, and uh, and as well in the winter time as far as snow cover, and the summertime. The transport of smoke into the uh, you know, into northern Utah. So, the the difficult part with models of the atmosphere is being able to resolve the terrain in enough detail to be able to actually uh, handle the fluid motion well.
0: We turn to Randy Martin. Uh, you were saying before we went on the air, uh, you're you're trying to figure out how to. Uh, do some of the same same stuff, right? Uh, to, to know where where what the air quality is in in kind of a finer detail, not not just one station in Logan, say, but uh, but other areas.
2: Right. We know even under an inversion layer, the air still moves around a bit underneath that, and there's still uh, time involved for a lot of the chemical reactions that go on uh, within that inversion layer. So, as as John is saying, that it's really important to be able to model not only the chemical transformations of the pollutants, but also how it's moving within an enclosed system. Now, we're in more, more enclosed than, than down in the Wasatch Front, but it's it's very similar. It still moves around underneath that inversion layer, and we've got to predict that more accurately. So we can not only predict pollutant behavior, but ultimately uh, what people are exposed to, you know, at different areas around the valleys.
0: And very interestingly, you told me that you, you're considering how do you get this information out. Right,
2: you- yeah. One, on another project, a proposal that we're putting together, we're trying to figure out how to estimate how the populations in the various valleys use the data and what they do. Do they access the data through the DAQ webpage or is a Facebook page going to be more appropriate or Twitter or app, apps on their phone that can they can access. So these are kind of things that we're developing now.
0: Uh so that would be interesting get this word out through through social media.
2: Yeah, I mean I hope we get this proposal funded and look forward to some future research. And you would think you
0: would have some motivated participants.
2: Oh, yeah. Uh, one of the things we don't have a shortage of is uh, active parties that want to be involved in this.
0: Yeah. At the same time, I th- I think, le- except when it's really, really bad, when I saw just about everybody get sort of in that active mode, I think a lot of us sort of go back to You know, sort of apathy.
2: Yeah, we tend to forget about uh, the pollution situation here in the Wasatch Front and and here in the Cache Valley until it's bad in the wintertime. Um, There are some ozone issues that are cropping up in both valleys. Uh, We've got ozone in the the Uinta Basin in the wintertime, but we tend to be very short-sighted in what we're concerned about. But I will say within the last two or three years, I've seen a lot more air awareness, which is rewarding to me personally. Yeah.
0: Let's turn to Seth Ahrens, uh, who is environmental science with the Division of Air Quality. And uh believe the, the division, um, it, of course, monitors air quality. Research is not the main goal of the DAQ, but it's been involved in more air quality research. And uh, you've uh, investigated summer ozone problems in the mountain valleys of Utah. What do you can tell me about
3: that?
4: Uh, yes, we've been looking at. Uh, ozone concentrations in other places around the state uh, since 2010. And some of the places we've been looking are, well, firstly, places that we don't monitor, uh, places where we don't have permanent air quality monitoring stations. So we've been looking at ozone in mountain valleys, places such as Huntsville, Park City, Heber, uh, even as far south as Mount Pleasant, and also looking at ozone in rural western Utah, and we actually found in many of the mountain valleys to the east of the Wasatch Front, the ozone concentrations were actually as high or even occasionally higher than what we'd find in Salt Lake City, Ogden, or other cities at the Wasatch Front.
0: By the way, my producer tells me it's, it's Arns, your name. <laughs> I apologize for that. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, Seth Arns no joins us. Uh, so the, this might surprise some people that we perhaps have an air quality problem in Park City. Heber.
4: Yes. Um, and I think it, in general, it would and does su- surprise the general public. This is kind of what we'd expect in many ways that we'll often see not just here in Utah, but other places in the country. You'll see the highest ozone concentrations actually downwind of the major cities. And places like Park City are both Downwind of Salt Lake City, and they're also at higher elevation. And in general, we find higher ozone uh, as you go up in elevation.
0: Uh, let's turn it back to Professor Harrell. Uh You've studied ozone, and I think maybe we don't think about ozone as much because you, you don't see it.
1: That's right. You know, the sort of the, the the standard message is ozone up high is good, and nearby is bad. What that means is. Ozone is really important for, uh, you know, human life to have plenty of ozone high in the atmosphere because it helps to uh, remove harmful ultraviolet radiation, which causes skin cancer and a variety of other things. But when it's down near the surface, then we end up with a lot of respiratory problems. And uh, so it's that kind of – and the difficult part of it is is that ozone – Uh, is not really, you know, visible like the wintertime particulates are, so people are, are a little less aware of the issue. And during the summertime, you also have the highest ozone when people are outside doing more things. So the ozone concentrations tend to be lower in the morning and then increase in the afternoon when people are out recreating or running around biking, those sort of things.
0: And uh, you're telling me in these materials you sent me, unlike particulates that get trapped near the bottom of the valley, particulates in wintertime, ozone concentrations are often elevated on the benches.
1: Yes. uh, One of the novel things that some other scientists here at the university did was to uh, install the ozone sensor along with other sensors on the red line of tracks, which goes from the campus down into the center of the valley and then ends up over in daybreak on the west side of the valley. And... Uh, over the last month it was very clear as far as having the higher ozone concentrations both on the east side of the valley and the west side of the valley with less uh, ozone at, at down uh, near the freeways. And part of the explanation for that is that the creation of ozone is uh, you know, sort of a complex uh, relationship between uh, pollutants that are emitted from cars and homes and then needing a lot of sunlight. And so the pollutants, the other pollutants, can actually consume some of that ozone uh, down where there's a lot of cars moving around.
0: So tell me about the health effects of ozone. Uh, you know, it's, it's immediately parallel at least it feels like it with winter particulates. You just see that bad air, and you, you hate to even breathe it in because you can see it. Ozone, you can't see, uh, but you're, you're saying it says bad health effects.
1: Yes. Uh, people that are sensitive, uh, that have respiratory problems, both young and old, can be very sensitive to high concentrations of ozone. Uh,
0: we're going to go to a break. When we come back, we'll have more on uh, science, latest science on air pollution. And uh, we're talking about this uh problem even uh, though we're not in a uh, particularly high uh, you know particulate uh, time uh, inversions and the like we're probably heading toward that two winters ago was especially bad early 2000s Randy Martin was uh, reminding me were really bad and, I, and when he said that I remember it now um, but uh, the problem getting worse in several areas the uh, science has been ongoing and there's some new funding from the legislature we'll talk about some of that research and the ongoing research and if you have a, a question We'd love for you to participate in the, in the uh, program. We know that uh, many of you are involved in the issue and uh, trying to find out ways to help with the problem or solve the problem. Second annual Clean Air Fair was held recently in Salt Lake City. Cash Clean Air Consortium is holding a workshop. That will be coming up in Logan, on the campus of Utah State University on October 1st for two examples. More with John Harrell from University of Utah, Seth Arns from Division of Air Quality, and Randy Martin from Utah State University following this break. And you can call us at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. You can join us uh, by email to upraccess at gmail.com, and we are on Twitter and Utah and uh, Facebook at Utah Public Radio. More following break. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at
2: usu.edu/hr.
3: Stress is what you feel when you have to handle more than you are
4: used to. When you are stressed, your body responds as though you are in danger. It makes hormones that speed up your heart, make you breathe faster, and give you a burst of energy. This is called the fight or flight stress response. Stress is normal, but if it happens too often or lasts too long, it can have bad effects. It can be linked to headaches, upset stomach, back pain, and trouble sleeping. It can weaken your immune system, making it harder to fight off disease. You probably can't delete all stress from your life, but you can get better at managing your stress. Start a stress journal, ask for help when you need it, do some deep breathing exercises, and get some exercise. Find something that works for you and enjoy this life you've been given. This is Angela Helm for the Be Well program at Utah State University. Be well, Utah.
0: talking about air pollution on the program today. Um, some winters you can uh, almost eat the air and you see people going around in face masks. It's, uh, your heart goes out to, to people who are especially affected, but we're all affected, of course. And uh, even when you don't see the air pollution, we're, we are being affected. That's the case with ozone. And some areas where you might not think there is a problem, our guests are telling us there is. Park City, Heber, those kinds of areas. Seth Arns has been involved in studying ozone in some of those mountain valleys. Uh, Seth Arns is with the uh, Utah Division of Air Qualities, environmental scientist. Uh, John Harrell is University of Utah Professor of Atmospheric Sciences, and uh, they both join us by telephone. In studio is Utah State University Associate Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering, Randy Martin. You're welcome to join this conversation. It's 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. You can reach us at upraccess at gmail.com. And we are on Twitter, at Utah Public Radio. You can join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook site as well. Dallin Phillips has liked our post, likes that we're talking about this issue on the program today. Uh, let me start with uh, Randy Martin on this. I know all of you gentlemen have been involved in uh, ozone studies in the Uinta Basin, and uh, so I wonder if, where we are with this? Where have we come down to, Randy Martin, with, with, the, with the ozone in, in the U.N. Basin? Uh, I'd like to start with, and this is always what we're wondering, what's causing this? Is it the increased industry?
2: Uh, yeah, that's definitely part of a big part of the picture. Uh, the ozone, the winter t- wintertime ozone is an odd phenomenon. As, as John had mentioned before, uh, it takes sunlight to make a lot of ozone. And the, the past thought process was, well, in the winter, you just don't have enough sunlight. Um, then in 2005, I believe it was, actually over in the Pinedale region of Wyoming, uh, they measured some high ozone in the middle of the winter and went through checks, thought it was the equipment, thought it might have been some really strange stratospheric interchange. Um, but then they started thinking about it in the wintertime. They're at a relatively high elevation. They have inversions. They have lots of sunlight, uh, although it's, it's low-angle sun. Um, but it reflects off the snow, so it basically doubles the amount of sunlight coming in. And then you have a very rapidly growing uh, oil and gas industry that has the potential to emit a lot of hydrocarbons, a lot of NOx, and so you've actually got this perfect soup for creating ozone. And that was the exact same thing that we started seeing in the Uinta Basin in about 2010, it was first noticed. We started doing some saturation studies out there and found out that During inversion conditions in the wintertime, the ozone was very high and very widespread. That led to a few years of very intense research involving lots of different researchers from both the state of Utah, uh, the NOAA group out of Boulder, Colorado, several other universities to try to characterize the actual chemistry involved and what were the limiting factors. And I think we have a pretty good handle on that now. So now it's just a matter of seeing what we can do to remediate the problem out there.
0: John Harrell, I want if you to talk about this as well. And and as a, uh, I, I grew up in the Uinta Basin. I can testify that uh, you get those inversions. It's on a wider, it's on a broader scale. The entire basin is locked in. <laughs> there have been winters that I've uh, suffered through with with some gunky air for months on end. Of course, this is ozone that that you can't see, but uh, kind of a kind of a unique situation here.
1: Yeah, it really is, and you know at at the same time in that you know you end up with a deep freeze as well it's typically the temperatures are really cold
0: boy that's true so
1: yeah and it's it's this without the snow cover um then the ozone concentrations will will be much less and typically the the conditions just aren't nearly uh conducive enough to be able to to have a real severe pollution episode so and the the interesting thing about the Uinta Basin is it doesn't snow a lot, uh, typically out there. But and all it really takes is one really good snowstorm in mid to late December. Uh, and you're primed to then have uh, these conditions later on because the snow will typically stick around for, for quite a while there, and you end up into one of these deep freezes. And it will encompass the, the entire basin when that happens.
0: So it takes some weather conditions. and That's always the case, isn't it? The weather has an effect on this.
1: It is, and that's what makes it so difficult this uh... you know it it, when you're you know you're not talking about having to have a whole bunch of snowstorms come through it only takes one or two, and that's enough to sort of trigger this event. And fortunately for the people living out in the basin this last winter, uh, the conditions, we had a uh, an early snowstorm that, that lasted, and ozone concentrations went up very early in the season. Uh, but then there really wasn't any more snow, and uh, by the time when the ozone really could have taken off, there, the snow had pretty much disappeared. Mm.
0: So if the weather conditions are right... Do the, do the um, pollution levels do they're they're kind of the similar level from 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 year to year. It's just the weather conditions ameliorate it sometimes, and make it worse, other times. Well,
1: the 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 precursor pollutants, the types of things that lead to the formation of ozone, are going to be there whether the snows on the ground or not but uh when the snows there then as Randy said you get sort of this doubling effect you get twice as much solar radiation to kick off the formation of the ozone and without that you won't you'll you'll still have some pollutant issues but you won't be dealing with the ozone problem
0: so Arns, i wonder if i could uh, maybe move this a little bit more toward policy we i think a lot of us are wondering what's causing this and what's the biggest source of, of this, whether it be ozone or particulate some other time, so that we can, you know, solve the problem, perhaps through rule making. Um and I, I wonder what the what the latest is on, on that, especially in the UNA basin. I, is it industry and is it time for uh, regulations, increased regulations there?
4: Well, in terms of the UNA basin, we haven't um gotten to a point where we are actually, according to the EPA, in non-compliance with the ozone standard. Um, So we haven't gotten yet to the point where we will be making a plan in order to curb pollution. We're kind of still in the phase where we're studying what the problem is. EPA is also likely going to change the ozone standard uh, this coming December. They've been talking about doing this for the past couple years but this hasn't happened yet. So the ozone standard will likely be lowered from 75 parts per billion, which is an eight-hour average, to something lower than that, perhaps somewhere between 60 and 70 parts per billion. So we won't really start a process of, from a policy standpoint of creating plans to do things about the air quality there until that standard is finalized. Hmm. Also, the jurisdiction in the U.N. basin is very complex because it's not just state land where we have authority. There's a mix of federal, tribal, and state authorities that have regulatory power over
0: that area. And the pollution's not going to respect uh, political borders. No, so, certainly yeah. not. Yeah. Randy Martin, I wonder, um, and you've probably talked to people, and the people come up to you, they, they know you study this this issue, and, the, and, you, and people get impatient on this. Or they would tell you it's, you know, it's not in patience, it's, uh, you know, it's, a, it's a clear and present danger that we've got to solve, and yet it seems like we always come back to the EPA and, and things move slowly there on that front.
2: It is somewhat of a glacial process, but and to be fair, I hear people, from people from, from both extremes, if you will, uh, that it's only a problem part-time of the year, that my one car can't be the one, a main issue, uh, but then I also hear people that, you know, I can't go outside in the wintertime, uh, it affects my breathing. So, yeah, I hear from all sides on this. and it's. Uh, but I think the thing we need to keep in mind is that it's not the EPA, like, lowering the PM 2.5 standard on us back in 2006, whenever it was. Uh, it, it's really the health and science data that shows that we need to be more protective for a lot of these pollutants.
0: I want to, the biggest segue to talk about, we'll, we'll loop back, talk a little bit more about ozone, but uh, taking it back to the winter particulates. Uh, There are new rules in Cache Valley on uh, auto emissions. That's January 1st of this year. Right, right? January 1st of
2: this year. uh, There's actually a suite of new rules that came across, and the automobile emission inspection program was targeted to reduce about a third of our emissions uh, relative to the PM two and a half. And in regards to that, from this year, it's been mostly a success. I think. Uh, It was predicted that about a little less than 10% of the 96 and newer cars would fail, a little less than 20% of the older cars would fail, and it's been right along those those lines. So it's Mm -hmm. about where we thought it would be, which means hopefully that we'll get the benefits that we thought we'd get, and so I think that's been a success.
0: What are those benefits that were predicted?
2: Well, uh, a reduction in the precursor compounds, uh, the NOx and the VOCs, which then go in through a lot of complex chemistry to form the ammonium nitrate. So we'll be emitting less of those raw compounds to hopefully reduce our PM two and a half. Uh,
0: let's let's turn a bit to the uh, the winter inversions and the uh, the particulate uh, pollution. That's the stuff that we can see, and it probably gets people, you know, more excited and maybe moves them to action a, a little faster. Um, and uh, John Harrell, um, you're saying uh, that long term trends. You wrote to me, the long-term trends in pollutant concentrations along the La Wasatch Front indicate improved conditions during the past 30 years due to increased controls on vehicle industrial emissions. So, uh, improvements?
1: Yes. I mean, the the uh, data collected by the Division of Air Quality have shown that, you know, for a number of, of these pollutants, the concentrations over the last 30 to 40 years have decreased. Uh but at the same time that the pollutants are going down, the number of people in the Wasatch uh, Front and Cache Valley are increasing. So, so there's always these sort of trade-offs. And it's, it's expected that uh, when there's new federal regulations uh, on uh, uh, vehicle emissions that will, will get uh, phased in over the next several years, that will continue to improve the situation but on the other hand there's still going to be more potentially more cars uh and more people and so uh those two things you know are kind of uh, uh a counterbalance the other part of it is is that while overall the pollution levels have diminished The, you know, ability, the the science and especially the work in the health uh, field to look at the effects of ever smaller size particles that haven't been measured uh, as they now, they can be measured now where they couldn't in the past. That those are the ones that are really potentially um, harmful to people's health.
0: So Thorns, I wonder if you could follow up with that health effects of these uh, particulates.
4: Well, I'm, I'm not really an expert on on health effects uh, of particulate uh, matter, but certainly, you know, it, it follows many of the same issues as with ozone. People who have respiratory issues, cardiovascular issues, the very old and the young, those are the people that are most affected by particulate matter pollution.
0: Yeah, we had uh, two years ago, two winters ago, and it was especially bad. Uh, we had people calling in and uh, talking about health complaints. And, and then some of these people, even if they didn't go outdoors, they were, you know, coughing. And so a lot of people with face masks, It's it's been well documented, uh, the health effects from these, these particulates. And as uh, Professor hurrell said, uh, smaller and smaller uh, particulate matter. Randy Martin, I guess that's that's somewhat worrisome.
2: Yeah, there's... More and more data that suggests that those small particles, what they call the nanoparticles, uh, actually cross over from the the lungs into the blood directly, and then act wow. as carriers and end up in all different parts of your body.
0: Yeah, and that's 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 more troublesome for sure. Yeah. Uh, so, like I said before, if, if you don't have a bad winter, I guess we all sort of go back to well, not all of us, because I think if you've really been affected by this, uh, you're you're on guard in any season. Um. But it, but, it, but it probably takes a really bad season to, to get everybody. To get everybody's attention, yeah. Everybody's attention. Mm-hmm. But uh, so, so these these effects, at least in some people, I guess are ongoing no matter the, the uh, sort of the oscillation of, of, of the problem.
2: Yeah, and it's a, it's a long-term effect too. A lot of uh, the things that happen to people, they don't observe it right away. And they might not actually feel it for several days after the event or later in their life even as it compounds over the years. Uh, Dr. Roger Coolum here on campus has been involved in studies that suggest that we can detect even very uh, small changes in the air quality can affect your lung function and uh, at the statistical level. So we are being affected whether we actually know it or not.
0: Yeah. Uh, Seth Arons, uh you're involved in Division of Air Quality and Monitoring, um, and, and you said you, you monitor a lot of areas. I wonder what the, what the results are. Are saying we'll ask Dr. Harrell and Dr. Martin to to chime in on this as well, in terms of uh, pinpointing the source. And as I mentioned before, that's important to, for policy. And sometimes we hear industry is is the biggest source, especially for the particulate matter. And we hear well, no cars are a, a big part of this. And that you know, you can see this goes directly to to policy. What what's the latest with with the monitoring?
4: Well, it's unfortunately as our Air pollution problems uh, have become more complex, and we're talking about things like ozone and PM2.5 that are chemical processes. These aren't uh, these aren't compounds. They're directly emitted from a source. The problem is, is more and more and more diffuse sources, things like automobile traffic, sources that we call area sources. These are things like uh, emissions from your natural gas furnace, emissions from large construction equipment, such as payloaders, cranes, things like that. This is really where the bulk of our pollutants come from, our NOx and VOCs, during times of inversions. If you, look, if you look at emissions across the entirety of the year, you might see something different, but we don't necessarily care about those emissions as much when they're not inversions. But during these inversion periods, Unfortunately, there aren't lots of point sources that we can go to. We've actually done a pretty good job over the years at improving other air quality problems, such as total suspended particles, TSP, as it was called before, PM10, and some of these point sources have already been regulated very well.
0: John Harrell, you were telling us earlier, and what Seth Arn's just saying it, it underscores that point, is this is complex and and we need better models to uh, to be able to run scenarios. Um, I, I guess we, you would agree with uh, Seth Arons. This is you, yes, and then we were
1: we were talking about before with respect to winter base, and it's also it's very weather dependent. Um, you know, again, uh, we tend to get more storms here along the Wasatch Front and in the Cache Valley, but it's that same kind of of cycle. You need in the winter time. Um, you need to get a good snowstorm in here lay some snow down on the ground uh... and that helps to sort of create this refrigeration uh... near the surface it keeps the air near the ground really cold and then aloft you move in relatively warm air and it creates these stable inversion type conditions uh... fortunately along the wasatch front and Cache that will typically break up after, you know, another when another storm comes through. So our typical events last from, you know, a few days to as long as 10 days, whereas in the Uinta Basin it can last a lot longer. So in order to really be able to uh, understand these uh, uh, processes, it takes these numerical models that simulate the atmosphere and the chemistry of all these pollutants in order to be able to uh, diagnose what's going on. And then the Division of Air Quality is tasked uh, to develop what's called a state implementation plan where they use numerical models to kind of do what-if scenarios, where if you change emissions in different categories, what impact would that have on a particularly uh, uh, bad air quality period.
0: Ernie Martin, the same question, especially for Cache Valley.
2: Well, yeah, I think uh, John underscored the importance of getting the numerical models correct, and uh, as an example of that, uh, and understanding the chemistry, uh, we know that our pollutant, both in Salt Lake Valley and up in Cache Valley, when it gets bad, is dominated by ammonium nitrate. And the question is, how do you get to that ammonium nitrate? The ammonia, we pretty much know where all that comes from. The uh, the nitrate side of things, it's actually nitric acid that has to be formed in the atmosphere, and that's formed through a complex series of reactions involving oxides of nitrogen or NOx and hydrocarbons. And it's a definitely a nonlinear set of equations, so you have to understand which one you need to reduce, or you can actually reduce one and end up increasing the ultimate PM2.5. So for in the Cache Valley we're kind of at parity. We can reduce them both and get reduction. In Salt Lake, they're not. If they reduce NOx, they can actually see an increase in their PM 2.5. So they have to really target their VOCs down there.
0: That, that does sound very complex. It is, yeah, um, definitely. We're, uh, when we come back, we'll talk. Uh, we'll take another break. Come back, we'll talk about auto emissions. Um, Randy Martin is involved in an auto emission study, idling. Which, Idle. Is, which has been identified as a idling, problem. non-idling, cold starts, um, and uh, given the complexity of, of the problem, I'll ask each of our scientists here what uh, what they would suggest and what they're looking for from uh, future studies. One uh, response could be, and I can see some people doing this: throw your hands up. It's too complex. <laughs> I can't understand it. Who cares, you know? I guess unless you have to wear a face mask and such and you're really getting hacking your lung up. Uh, we'll talk about that and, and what, respo- what people can do, I guess, what you suggest people can do. We have people concerned about this. The second annual Clean Air Fair was held this past weekend in Salt Lake City. The Cash Clean Air Consortium has been formed. They're holding a workshop in Logan on October 1st on the campus of Utah State University. Just uh, some examples, there's a... Um, uh, I can't remember what you call it, uh, a gathering of legislators this past legislative session on uh, air quality. And there was some action at the legislature, including some money for research. And uh, those studies are are ongoing. More on this uh, air quality problem following this break.
1: Did you know that positive coping strategies can help slow the progression of Alzheimer's disease and dementia? So, if you're a caregiver... Take care of yourself, count your blessings, and ask for help when you need it.
0: Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at CEHS.usu.edu.
2: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crum Brothers Artisan Brad and Logan. Open Monday through Friday until 3 p.m. A wholesale retail company dedicated to crafting a selection of artisan breads and pastries using old world techniques of preparation and baking. Information at Crumbbrothers.com.
0: We're talking about air pollution on Utah Public Radio today on Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, glad you're listening. We have with us uh, three scientists, John Harrell from University of Utah, Seth Arns from the Division of Air Quality, and Randy Martin from Utah State University. They're all involved in uh, air quality, air pollution studies, both uh, particulate matter and ozone. We've been talking about the latest science, uh, concentrating on that on the program today. We're going to get into actionable items uh, a little bit later as we uh, wrap up the program. Um, And I know this is of concern to people, the uh, cash... uh, Air, Clean Air Consortium, their workshop, they say, will be focused on what they say are actionable items, which is understandable. You have a workshop, you want to be able to take something away from it. Um, and the uh, second annual Clean Air Fair in Salt Lake City over the weekend uh, had a hashtag, Pollution Solutions. And I noticed a lot of people biked to and from that fair. Uh, a couple of, I was amused to, to read on Facebook, a couple of them uh, said it was uh, kind of far out uh, to, beyond where they usually went, and they were kind of tired from biking further than they usually did. But they biked, and so maybe that's a solution. Uh, The way to reach us is uh, upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. The number is 1-800-826-1495. We're on Twitter, at Utah Public Radio. We're on Facebook. This is a question. Uh, I'll direct this to Seth Arns. Uh, Denny in Cedar City asks... He says, please ask your guests what effects if any UTA light rail and tracks is having on air quality along the Wasatch Front.
4: Well, I'd say it's difficult to exactly say how much that helps air quality. However, we know that vehicle traffic, especially during times of inversions, makes up a large portion of the precursors to PM 2.5. So any people that are commuting via light rail, bicycle, carpool, vanpool, that's reducing the number of vehicles that are on the road during an inversion period, which is ultimately going to help our air quality. Mm.
0: So a uh, 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 net positive.
4: Absolutely, a net yeah. positive effect. I, I can't say that we have specific studies that I can say the presence of tracks has reduced air pollution by X percent. However, we know that more, the more people riding tracks means less vehicles on the road. That means less precursor emissions going into the atmosphere.
0: And parenthetically, I wondered uh, what, what the, uh, I don't know if the Division of Air Quality has advice on this, but it's kind of a catch-22, especially in bad air days. You bike to work, that helps. You're not, uh, you're not emitting, but you're maybe breathing in that, that bad air at a higher rate.
4: That, that, is, that is a tough problem. I know myself, I try to bike commute as much as I can, and my strategy for that is I simply budget more time to get to work via bike so I can ride more slowly, so I don't elevate my heart rate quite as much because oh. the the higher your respiration rate, the more particulates you're going to be breathing in.
0: Interesting. Okay. That sounds like a, a, a solution. And uh, and finally, a final little parenthetical on this, um, it made me wonder, uh, Denny's in Cedar City, uh, is everywhere having increased problems or, or just certain areas? You know, Cedar City, St. George, are going to have a increased problem? Yeah. Um, or is it just Salt, salt Lake Valley, um, you know, Wasatch Front, Cache Valley, Uinta Basin?
4: So uh, generally our serious air problem, air quality problems are along the Wasatch Front, Cache Valley, and the Uinta Basin. There's not really any known air quality problems in Cedar City. We haven't really done monitoring there in Cedar City. However, we will in the next several years. We may be doing some monitoring in that area. In St. George, we do monitor for ozone and particulate matter. There's not much of a particulate matter pollution problem in St. George with the exception of occasional dust storms that might create high concentrations of PM10. However, there can be some moderate levels of ozone during the spring and early summer in the St. George area. I'll
0: hmm. we'll talk about uh, research that's uh, that's being funded by the legislature and the governor's office. Uh, start with Randy Martin. You're um, I-, I think you're are you using some of this money for that auto emissions study?
2: Yeah, we're uh, in, in, in conjunction with some folks down at Weber State. We are going to be doing automobile emission measurements, uh, looking at the difference between cold starts, what we call hot starts, and then idle as well. See if we can't answer that question with some actual numbers about when you run into 7-Eleven for your big gulp, should you shut your car off, or... or when you start your car in the morning, should you leave it warming up in your driveway or should you just drive off? And so we'll actually have numbers to put to that to a vehicle fleet that's representative of the well, the Wasatch Front.
0: Now, that seems like an actionable item. You're studying something that, 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 that I can actually control, whether or not to idle my car.
2: Yeah, that's, that's what we hope to do. And, and uh, we've got some preliminary studies from th- things we did last year that are pointing us in, in which
0: direction we want to look at a little more. But by uh, this early spring, we should have some real good numbers. Mm. John Harrell, you're you're uh, using some of this legislative money, aren't you, uh, to to uh, do some? Is it the ozone studies?
1: Um, yeah, in a couple of ways. One, working with uh, scientists at uh, Utah State and BYU. Uh, you know, is, as Seth said, the you know the Uinta Basin is not in a non attainment status yet, and one of the good things is to try to. Uh, develop the numerical models to the point where they can uh, be used for that process so that we can understand how to improve the situation down the road. So we're working together to try to do a better job at, at handling the meteorology as well as the chemistry out in the Uinta Basin. That's one of the projects. And then the one that Randy, Seth, and I are all involved in is a, a modest uh, project that we just started this summer and will continue more next summer to look at, at uh, the summer ozone problem, in particular the way the Great Salt Lake uh, may have a, a role in this whole process. Uh, so the the lake itself is uh, ends up uh, being a, a kind of a reservoir of ozone uh, that can then uh, get blown in or destroyed uh, by lake and land breezes. and so that has a big impact on the afternoon pollution levels along the Wasatch front.
0: Uh, we're just uh, down to uh, just a few minutes left in the program, I'd like to go around and, uh, and ask you what the, what the biggest thing is the, that you're curious about that maybe you're going to be working on with regard to air pollution uh let me start with um with seth arns what's the what's the biggest thing out there the biggest question that you wish you could answer or maybe you're working on
4: well i think in a general sense the things that are most important now is understanding the complexities of pollution formation both pm 2.5 and ozone and like randy and john have said of trying to understand the chemistry behind these pollutants to try and improve modeling, to then use that information to actually improve air quality along the Wasatch Front, because it's these more complex and difficult solutions that will solve our air quality problems going forward.
0: Mm -hmm. Randy Martin, what's the the biggest thing?
2: Uh, It's pretty much second a lot of what Seth just said. one of the things I, I'm looking forward to, too, is, is looking at more community interaction and how they're dealing with the data and what they do to modify their behaviors.
0: Hmm. Uh, John Harrell
1: exciting things is there's uh, this has really motivated a lot of interaction not only between sort of the physical scientists but also with medical professionals. And here at the University of Utah, there's a program that kind of links those two. And so the uh, here uh, at the university, there's a Utah population database that has a lot of information on Uh, sort of the population and where people live and and so but what they need is to have a lot more information on what the pollutant concentrations are both in space and time on a much finer scale than they've had available before if there's going to be any way to really relate this uh, to people's health so so there's just a lot of uh, exciting things happening in that area.
0: Yeah, we have about three minutes left. Uh, l- let me uh, go around with this question. This will be the final question. start with Randy Martin. So I mentioned uh, you know, actionable items. That's what the, the Cash Clean Air Consortium is going to be doing in their, their workshop, which I believe you're going to be involved in that. That's October 1st, by the way, in, in uh, Logan. Uh, so what people can take away from, from this program? What, what can I do?
2: Uh, I think it's one of the things that we've, that we've been saying for the last several years, really, is just be aware that we're all part of the problem. And we all have to contribute to the solution.
0: And John Harrell, what would you say?
1: Yeah, very much the same thing. And, you know, I, uh, as part of sort of downsizing in my family, we moved from Sandy back closer to the university where I used to be and sort of giving up the long commute life to a short commute and uh, taking advantage of public transportation using the the bus. Uh, where it just really wasn't as practical uh, to do that before. So every little bit we can uh, can do individually uh, can contribute to uh, improving the air quality uh, in Utah. Uh,
0: Seth Arnes will give you the last word.
1: I, I would echo what both John and Randy
4: said. Anything that, that we can do individually to reduce the, the miles driven by vehicles, especially during times of inversion, is probably going to be, the single largest thing that any individual can do to help air quality during times of inversions.
0: We'll leave it there. Uh, we're out of time. Uh, we have uh, appreciated, do appreciate uh, three scientists coming on to tell us the latest and uh, and what we can do. Randy Martin joins us in the studio. He's uh, with uh, Utah State University. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. And uh, John Harrell is with the University of Utah. Thanks. You're welcome. And Seth Arns with the Division of Air Quality. Thanks.
4: You're welcome. Thanks
0: for having me on, Tom. We're going to uh, stick with the environment tomorrow in the program. We have several people from Logan who uh, were at that big climate change rally in New York City on Sunday. And uh, we'll have Jack Green and some others talk about uh, climate change, what happened at the rally, and what they hope happens going forward. Talk climate change on the program tomorrow. Hope you'll join us. In the meantime, thanks for listening to Access Utah.
2: Zach Ibrahim was supposed to become a terrorist like his father, but that plan was derailed.
0: I had to basically realize that my father was an extremist and that he was willing to take innocent people's lives for his cause.
2: Stories of transformation next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Monday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio.
3: Welcome to Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Bridgerland Audubon Society, USU Extension, and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University. Hi, I'm Holly Strand from the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University. More and more, you're likely to hear this sound in Utah yards, parks, and fields. That's the call of the Eurasian collared dove. Originally from Asia, this dove has been expanding its territory around the world at an incredible rate. The first sighting in Utah was in Orem in 1997, and now the doves are everywhere. So far, it doesn't look like our native morning dove is affected, but such rapid population explosions rarely occur without some sort of undesirable ecological consequence. In America, the Eurasian collared dove is an invasive species— But not all non-native species are invasive. Invasive only applies when species spread far beyond the area where they are first introduced. Luckily, not all invasive species turn out to be serious pests. Ecologist Mark Williamson suggested the TENS rule. About 10% of introduced species establish lasting populations, and 10% of those go on to become problems. There's a long list of Eurasian invasives in Utah, Among them is the highly flammable cheatgrass that comes from Southwest Asia. Those massive clouds of starlings, they come from Europe. Tamarisk from Eurasian deserts lines the Colorado River and tributaries. The common carp is an unwelcome Eurasian colonist of our lakes and large rivers. And the American West's iconic tumbleweed is an invader from the Russian steppe. Why so many invaders from Eurasia? Well, for the last 500 years, there's been a net outflow of Eurasians to other parts of the world, especially Europeans, and this human population carried its biological baggage along with it, in the form of animals, plants, and diseases. Some ecologists believe that the physical geography and human history of Eurasia has conditioned its species in such a way that they will consistently outcompete the species of other continents. But that's debatable for in the last decades, the New World has started to lob some pretty competitive species back over to Eurasia. For example, the American mink was brought to the Eurasian continent in the 1920s for use on fur farms. But, because of deliberate releases and accidental escapes, the mink is now common in the European wild. And it's a pest. The American mink is taking the place of the European mink, which is now threatened with extinction. Furthermore, the American mink is gobbling up populations of vulnerable, ground-nesting birds. Unless you are involved in agriculture, you might not have heard of the Colorado potato beetle. But potato growers around the globe know this striped orange and brown beetle from the American Southwest all too well. It has a voracious appetite for potato leaves and quickly develops resistance to any chemicals used against it. As a final example, the American bullfrog is considered one of the world's most damaging invasives. The bullfrog does amazingly well in a variety of habitats, even artificial ones like mill ponds, irrigation ditches, and reservoirs. Its incredible adaptability helps it spread and outcompete native frogs. Moreover, it's been transmitting a deadly fungus to previously unaffected populations of frogs, toads, and salamanders. Thanks to Lyle Bingham for information on the Eurasian collared dove, and to Ryan O'Donnell for his audio recording from xenocanto.org. For more information on the dove and other invasive species, go to www.wildaboututah.org. For Wild About Utah and the Queenney College of Natural Resources, I'm Holly Strand. Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Bridgerland Audubon Society, USU Extension, and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu.
0: The new Utah Debate Commission has organized several debates heading up to Election Day, and we invite you to tune in live to the first congressional district debate, which is happening Tuesday evening at 6, with Republican incumbent Rob Bishop facing off against his Democratic challenger Donna McAleer from Weber State University. That's Tuesday evening at 6. And you can listen to our rebroadcast the next morning, Wednesday morning at 11, right here on Utah Public Radio. UPR is participating once again in Vote Utah. There will be much more to come. And we kick that off with the first congressional district debate Tuesday evening at 6, here on Utah Public Radio.
4: Hi, it's Lynn Rosetto-Casper. This week we talked to Chef Dan Barber about why he thinks the eating local movement hasn't really changed the way we eat. There's lots of questions about what really works in the real world. Join us. That's this week on The Splendid Table, the show about life's appetites from APF.
2: Tuesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio.
0: Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio.